Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. I'm your host, Jay Shamdasani. Our guest today is Christian Hunt, author of the new book, Humanizing Rules, Bringing Behavioral Science to Ethics and Compliance. His current mission is to help organizations swiftly improve their ethics and compliance programs to achieve business outcomes. With over 27 years of experience in financial services from having worked in, in investment banking, asset management, and the family office, Christian is well suited to speak on the matter of having held senior roles, both as a regulator and risk and compliance officer, Prudential Regulatory Authority, and UBS, respectively. You can learn more about him at his website, www.human-risk.com. Again, that's www.human-risk.com. And with that, Christian Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, if you had to explain to a five-year-old, because not everyone is up on the world of compliance or behavioral psychology, what, what is the central thesis of your book and what are your key observations and conclusions? Sure. So let, let's start with talking about what human risk is, because the book is really helping to address that. And, and, and human risk is a very broad definition of the idea that human decision making can have negative consequences. And so what I'm helping people to do, and I'll put it in terms of the five year old understand, which is people make mistakes, people get things wrong. How can we stop that from happening? Now, sometimes they do that deliberately. Sometimes they do it accidentally, but we know that one of the biggest, in fact, the biggest risk facing organizations and society is human decision-making. When things go wrong, there is always a human component attached, either people causing problems in the first place or making it worse by the way that they react or don't react to them. And so what I'm helping organizations to do is to think about that challenge, which you will have if you employ people. In other words, it applies to all organizations. Um, to, to think about how we can more effectively manage the risks that that poses. So how can we get people to take better decisions, not make bad decisions? And so ethics and compliance sits at the core of that. But I also expand my work into areas like cybersecurity, information security, uh, you know, physical security, health and safety, any or indeed broad um, line management of people anywhere where you are trying to influence people's decision making to get them to do certain things or not do certain things, um, you know I can I can help you think about that using behavioral science. What's behavioral science? It's the understanding of human decision making, not the reasons that we would like to think we make decisions. We're all very good at making excuses for our decisions, but the actual genuine drivers of decision making. If we understand that. We can design systems and processes that make it more likely people will do the things we want them to and less likely that they won't. Your your point about, you know, the reasons and the excuses we make for why we do things is is so true. I mean, I mean, cognitive distance is a real thing. That and you know, the hypocrisy and double standards people will employ to justify their own conduct in a given instance versus someone else's with the same more or less set of facts. I mean, it's 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 staggering. And, and, and th- that you branch out in other fields like cybersecurity, I mean, it, it truly is a seamless web because at the end of the day, irrespective of the instrumentality, it's human error that takes down a lot of financial institutions and corporations. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, just to unpack Sometimes it's awful. Sometimes it, it's, you know, completely... Sometimes people, innocent mistakes have, you know, cost 
millions, if not billions. It's worth it's worth unpacking that a little bit because people often say, "Well, hold on a minute." Uh, we get systems outages. You know, things can go wrong that don't seem like they have a human component. But what I say to that is, if you think about systems outages as an example, um, what what is somebody is responsible for implementing that system? Somebody's responsible for maintaining it. Someone's decided which data goes into the system. Someone's decided what we do with the data that comes out of the system. So there is always human decision making and and responsibility on some level. And and if there isn't any, there should be. Ultimately, we need that, particularly in financial services. Regulators will pin things on individuals. You couldn't go to a regulator and say, we had a problem. Oh, that was just, you know, the, that was the, the fault of the AI or the fault. But of the, then the, the, what the... was foreseeable? What could you envisage? I mean, and, and all too often, it's the flunkies. It's the, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the people on the ground. It's the people at street level that pay the price because the further up you go up the hierarchy, it's harder to affix liability because responsibility becomes more diffuse because the people at the top are smart enough not to leave a paper trail. And and that I think is something that's changing with things like accountability regimes. So you've got in that, you know, the UK and Australia being the, the, the most obvious examples where that dynamic is now recognized. And so what regulators are saying is I, I kind of don't care where it happened, why it happened, you know, whatever the nuance is. Because we're, as you said, we're really good at excuses. So people will say things like, oh, I couldn't possibly have known that was going on, or that was that happened in an outsourced, you know, that happened in an outsourced service provider, or gosh, I didn't realize that. And what we where we're getting to in the regulatory environment now is to say, well, that's not good enough. I don't care that you didn't see it, you didn't know, you should have. You're responsible for this, that you're in that position, you're being paid, particularly in financial services, you're being paid a ton of money. But I, tr- I trusted my man in Lagos, they'll say. Well, well, and 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 the point therefore is this is what this is where I come into play, where you'd say, well, well, look, I have to, you know, you, you've got to think about that now and manage that. And just saying I put it in a policy and told them to do it, or I trained them on it so they should have known. The question now, I think, is, well, well, actually, you know, have you thought this through properly? You can't just tick the box. And I think a lot of historic compliance responses to human risk operate on a very logical basis. They operate, you know, I, I, the, the, the way I came into this field was I had been a regulator in, in the UK in financial services. And then I joined UBS, which was a firm that I spent most of my time as a regulator looking at. And your listeners will know that if a regulator is looking at you, it's not because you're doing a stellar job. It's because things have gone wrong. And so uh, I had imposed a lot of things as the senior regulator in the UK on UBS and then had to implement them because I joined the firm in in risk and compliance. And one of the things I realized was it wasn't landing the way that it was intended. And so lots of compliance programs and, and, you know, management control mechanisms are designed in a well, you know, we don't deliberately set out to design systems that will get people to screw up. But Right. What we're doing when we have a compliance program or or indeed other forms of incentives or management processes, we're thinking from an organizational perspective. And we're saying to ourselves, this is what we need the organization to do. Let's approach this logically. Let's, so let's make sure that we've got policies that cover every single thing we should have done. Let's make sure people are trained on this stuff. And so that is answering the organizational ask. The challenge is that ultimately what you need is human beings on the front line to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And, and of course, that's not always a binary thing. There's a qualitative component to that. So when we look at that, the organizational challenge is one that looks at, is the organization compliant? Are we getting the right outcomes we're looking for? But the way that you make that happen is to get the individuals 
on the front line in the business behaving in a particular way. So the, so the organizational challenge looks like, are we following a set of rules? But the human angle, the other end of it, is does this make sense to that individual? Do they understand? Do they agree with it? Do they accept it? Are they even aware that there is a particular requirement there? And so if we want to be effective, get the best out of our people, we need to find a way to translate this organizational ask into something that makes sense for the people on the front line. It's that translational piece that's, that's often missing. We approach the problem of compliance through a very logical lens. So here's, a, here's an example. A regulation comes along, and what we need to do is we need to make sure the organizations comply with our regulation. So we take the regulation, we transpose the regulation into a policy as closely as we can, because that's defensible. Then we can say, well, look, put the, and then we train people on that policy. And so we do things like we give people the genesis, the detailed genesis of a regulation. And we talk to them and you know, we, we, we sort of take them through at a level of detail they don't need. And we presume that if we download, dump all that information on them, that they will get it job done. But the interesting thing is the average person in the business isn't interested in compliance. I don't mean they're not interested in being compliant. Nobody, the, the vast majority of people don't show up to work wanting to screw up. Most people show, there's a very small minority that, that does deliberately want to break rules. But the vast majority of people come to work and want to do the right thing. And so if we look at that particular situation, what we've got to do is put them in a position where they can do that. Now, we don't do that by downloading every piece of information about a particular regulation into their brains, because that's not something that's going to grab their attention. They're not interested in it. And I know they're not interested in it because if they were, they'd be working in compliance. If they were passionate about compliance and rules, they'd work in the compliance function. So we need to take Very this- high turnover rates in banks, by mind you, compliance. And with the rate of change within the cha- rate of change, the highest turnover rates within compliance- or an AML KYC. Because uh, and that's and that's because the nature of the ask is massive, right? And and so the is challenge the that, is it that they're in demand. I mean, people are constantly job. Well, there's that, but there's that. Yeah. But the, but 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 bottom line is it, it was so there's two ways to look at it, right? You can either say people are leaving to do it, do the same thing somewhere else, or you can I, I it's a very important job, it's it's a responsibility, or you can say, Well, people don't but but you know, the, the the reason that you've got the turnover you're talking about in terms of people shifting to other other roles, right, is that, that there's limited supply. Very, very basic thing. If there were lots of people in this space, so why are people not going into that particular career is an interesting question. And I think one of the challenges with compliance is we make it sound quite boring. We don't make it sound desperately exciting. And if you add personal liability, so compliance officers are often first in line when things go wrong, they get blamed for it. And so we look at, well, you know, what, what is the task that we're setting people to do? Well, the answer is yes. Some of it we solve with technology. You know, there's things that tech can do. When we look at particularly the financial crime piece you were talking about, it's impossible for human beings to have the full oversight of the full list of sanctions, all the things you should, you know, you can't do that. We need technology to help solve that problem. But ultimately what we're asking people to do is to manage quite a big risk. And the, 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 the biggest challenge of managing that risk isn't just the tech, it's the human beings that you're trying to influence. And so when I look at the, you know, this is why I, you know, I come at this as, as a compliance officer. I had spent a lot of time working out why was it difficult to get the job that I needed to get done done, and that was to ensure that the business that I was covering, the region I was covering for the firm, was compliant and well, people doing the right. And the way that we went about it, and this is not a criticism of UBS, this is an industry-wide thing, was to think very logically, which is to say that if we're trying to influence people, what we what we need to do is just tell them what to do. Right. So we'll stick it in a policy. We'll sell them in a training. And that is a very logical approach to it. But as I was saying before, what, what we often do is, is put far too much information in there. We don't and need to turn book, it. The rule book keeps growing. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll yeah. 
for much of the 20th century in the U.S., it was either 13 or 15 or no more than 21 canons of ethics that governed the legal profession. By post-Watergate, everyone's like, okay, they've got to have a more comprehensive course in law schools and in legal ethics. And it got renamed professional responsibility. And what happened? The lawyers came up with a professional responsibility conduct guide that basically had a rule for every scenario. And did you know that people started suing more for malpractice in the age when there was a rule for every scenario? Whereas it was it was easier to grasp principles, a set a finite number of principles, and have that govern the profession than, than a rule for every eventuality, which led to people finding loopholes and, and, and gray area and that they could exploit and what 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 have you. And and I'm, it's almost like you, you're seeing the same thing in the corporate world, in, in the financial world, that, that, that endless, I mean, as Siren Johnston, um, a professor of securities regulation at HKU, once said to me, and he's explained this to his students, the Hong Kong, uh, you know, the um, to be a broker, to be in the, the securities profession, you will study myriad rules about what you should and shouldn't do. But he said, if you learn what you needed to in law school, if you know, you know what fiduciary duties are, if you know what what's right and wrong and what's you know kosher by the common law, these rules won't surprise you because you're used to thinking on a principle level, as opposed to a rule based level. What, what are your thoughts? So I think several things occur to me. The, the first one is you're absolutely right about this. There's a passion for codification, right? right. So, so something something goes, and typically it's something has gone wrong. And so, well, we need a rule about that. And so the rule books just expand because we just add rule on top of rule on top of rule on top of rule. And so well, your President point there- Reagan said in the early 80s, and uh, I, I'm, you, you're not too for anything about my own uh, views or voting preferences from this, but what he said back then was we've got, and this is in the early 80s when he first term first came to office. The quote was, We've got 10 million laws to enforce 10 commands. Right. Obviously, the regulatory state has grown since then, but I'm sorry, I interrupted. So, so 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 I've got two two thoughts on this, right? The, so the first the first one is there is this tendency towards codification that feels safer. So we write lots of anytime something goes wrong, let's write another rule. And the rule books just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there is a there's a there's a, a view, I think, that if you remove a rule, that increases risk. Now, that's all well and good. And it's very, very logical approach to things. But that, as you rightly point out, overloads the human beings that ultimately have to read and comply with those rules. And but it gives regulators more, it gives regulators more tools to come after you. From a from a logical legal perspective, yes. From a behavioral perspective, there, there's a challenge here because actually, and this is back to your point around loopholes, is that we often think, well, if we put a rule in place, that makes the world safer. But what's interesting about that is in a world where things are changing, and we can look at technology, we can look at social trends, we can look at you know, a ton of things that are shifting relatively rapidly at the moment. If you codify things, uh, what will happen is somebody will come along and say, ah, Okay, is there a rule that prevents me from doing this? Look, they've written a really fat rule book here. And so if there isn't a rule that prevents you in a highly codified world, actually, there's a massive set of opportunity for loopholes. 
Because people will assume naturally, if you've written a really fat rule book and something isn't in there, there's nothing to prevent you doing something, then it's okay to do it. Because logically, you're very adept at writing rules. If there wasn't a rule in there, then it means that you don't care about this particular issue. And so people can use that to advantage. So ironically, the fatter the rule book, in some cases, the more loopholes that you create. The challenge with principles that you were pointing out is, is yes, that that you know that is seemingly the antidote to everything. The challenge of principles is that those are flexible. And that's good. That's an advantage. But it also means that people can bend those. That's with and the common use law, them. right? Right. General statements of principles, which you can apply in myriad different scenarios. But people, people, people are very adept at bending those in ways that work for them. So that is why we need this combination of principles that can kind of cover the gaps and get us in the broad rough direction. But we're also going to need specific rules in certain circumstances where things are codifiable. And one of the other reasons you might need rules is there will be things that from the perspective of people that are having to follow the rules might not be obvious, but from a regulatory or a compliance perspective might actually be. So there are going to be some things that we do want to codify. We do want to have people reporting certain things. We do want to have particular outcomes that make sense from a societal perspective, but wouldn't necessarily make sense from a, from an individual organization perspective. In other words, we're going to, we're going to have to put things in the path of organizations being able to do things as efficiently and effectively as possible. We need organizations to report, for example, financial crime. We need organizations to report transactions. That comes at a cost that might not be something that they would want to do themselves. So we can't always depend to get the right societal outcomes. We can't always depend on individuals being able to work it out for themselves. There are going to be times where we need to intervene and we may need very specific rules if we can codify that to do that. But we don't need that for everything. And so what I'm about looking at is to say, what is the cognitive load on the population that we're trying to influence? What are the number of rules and things that we want people to remember? And how can we lighten that? Because one of the things we know from, from behavioral science and psychology uh, is that the human brain, you know, we, we, we try and use our brain as little as possible because the human brain takes up energy, right? It requires a lot of energy to think. That's why we can sit at a desk all day doing an office job and be exhausted at the end of it. We're not doing anything physical, but what we are doing is, is, is mental. And so the brain is a huge drainer of energy. So we are pre-programmed to use it as little as possible to jump to conclusions as quickly as we can to save energy. Perfectly well, logical, evolutionary if, thing. If any anyone who thinks writing doesn't burn calories... I mean, let, let's disabuse them of that notion right now. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and thinking about things and and particularly, you know, we, uh, I, I think there is just this, there's this there's this sort of belief that, well, you know, and, and that's one of the problems, right, is that we, we write rule books and we kind of go, well, it was in the rule book or you were trained on that, but people have a lot going on. And the more we're, we're asking human beings nowadays, particularly financial services, that, you know, the role is cognitive more than physical. Well, we're not asking people to, hey, there are some people in the space that are still carrying physical, you know, gold gets moved around occasionally in vaults, but the majority of people in financial services are not actually handling physical cash or physical assets. What they're doing is working with, with machines and sitting in front of screens, uh, you know, working in, 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 in that way. And so we've got to think about what are people, what are we asking people to do? Well, that's an environment where some of the risks that people pose are going to be less obvious to them. And it's much easier. We know that it's much easier for us to, 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 to do bad things. Indeed, look at social media. People put things on social media they would never dream of saying to someone's face. And yet they behave differently because the, 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 the impact of the digital interface, it doesn't feel like I'm talking to a real human being. Ditto if I'm committing crime, yeah. it can feel a lot easier to do it digitally than going to rob a bank, for example. Incent yeah, incentives and consequences. And the notion, again, this is really... 
bankers have taken this to a new high that if if they meant to prohibit it, there would have been a rule against. I mean, it's so it wasn't explicitly stated. I mean, it reminds me of one episode of the uh, short-lived TV show starring Gina Davis as the president of the United States, Commander in Chief, and one episode that they had a situation where a terrorist suspect was apprehended and you know the, some some uh, catastrophe was about to occur and she says as the president i don't want to hear he was tortured what happened he was tortured and she said i told you not she tells the national security advisor i told you not to torture him and she's like no you said you didn't want to hear he was tortured presidents right. don't speak in metaphors so again this notion that if it's not explicitly stated I can get away with it. And that, and that, you know, that, you know, what is interesting in the 21st century is we employ people to do things that involve very human attributes. So if we have a task that is predictable, where it's just, we just want the repeat same outcome, then we can give that to machines. And, and that's been the case in, in the physical world for some time, right? Robots in factories will produce things to a more consistent standard than human beings. And we're starting to see that now in the cognitive space with things like generative AI, uh, you know, the, the machines are coming in. And if the task is predictable in an environment that is predictable, then we'll give that to machines. So what we're asking people to do now is things that the machines can't yet, things that involve nuance, emotional intelligence, judgment, very, very human attributes that it is hard to program. Now, right. that's great because that's when we're at our best. It's also when we pose the largest amount of risk. And so the challenge that we've got in many cases is that the codification of the world becomes a little bit more difficult. You know, if you look at a, take a principle in financial services, like treating customers fairly, we need people to be working with us and thinking for themselves, right? Because we can't always code what's appropriate in one situation might not be appropriate in another. And one of the interesting things about compliance is we often look at the extremities, right? So we, we talk about obvious you know, training talks often about obvious situations that are where the answer is really clear. Those are not things people need help with. They need help with things they might not have thought about, might not be aware of. There might be a blind spot there. They may never have seen this particular thing where they need to start using their judgment. And so what we need from people will depend on the individual circumstance. Sometimes we just need them to be aware of something so they can go ask for help at the right moment. Other times we really need them to have a detailed understanding of something so that they can intervene and react in the right in, in the right way. And so we have to give people the right sort of toolkit. And the challenge with the traditional approach to compliance is here's a load of rules. This is what you need to do. And, and so we, we've taught people in a very, very theoretical way. What we need to do is to equip them practically to think for themselves. And so the challenge of compliance isn't just download the rules into everybody's head and we'll be okay. It's about thinking about which situations are people likely to find themselves in? How can we help them navigate those situations? How can we help them not navigate the black and white, but actually navigate the gray areas, the, 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 the difficult things? And so if we look at that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to co-opt people to help us to in, in, in the compliance quest. And so the level of knowledge, understanding that we need of a particular rule or policy will depend on the risks that that poses and the nature of it. And so that's the challenge that we're facing nowadays. So we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we want to comply with our rules and policies and attend our training and so on and so forth and think about not what we would like them to do, but what they are likely to do. What are real people faced with the things that they're having to do, the things they're incentivized to do, the rules, we want, what are they likely to do? And then we can design a framework that makes it more likely we'll get the outcome we're looking for. Seems to me one of your key premises is that compliance influences human decision-making and the only way to achieve full compliance, therefore, is that when all individuals in an organization do what they need to do, but yet 
that that is the that is the ideal, is it not? A standard that few of us, if ever, will meet. Well, I so so that, that that's the theory, right? The practice of it is, and I'm very very clear on this: 100% compliance is impossible. It is never going to happen. One, because humans are fallible. So even if you have the most, the best intended people in the world, they can be tired. They can screw up. They can come across a situation where they have a blind spot. There are always going to be things. And we, we know this, you know, so, and if we look, look in our personal life, we are all probably on a daily basis, but definitely on a weekly basis, some level will break a law. Right. And it might not be, it'll be an insignificant law, be something silly, and we'll have a really good reason for doing it. We might not even be aware that there's a law we're breaking. We will do that. We will also be unethical on some level. And so if we recognize the nature of that, people are going to loosely define people are going to screw up, right? They're going to get things wrong. And sometimes they're going to deliberately get them wrong because it suits them to do that. Sometimes it's going to be accidental and, and everything in between the two. And of course, those are not mutually exclusive things, right? So as we, as we look at that, um, we'd say to ourselves, this is the challenge that we've got. So my point is that 100% compliance is something that we should look at as a, as a sort of ideal aim, but we should recognize that is not realistic. So what we need to do is we need to recognize where does it really matter? Where do we not want people to screw up? Because the consequences are so severe. So matters of life and death would be a good example of something that is absolutely severe. But you might say from a reputational perspective, if I'm a financial services institution, um, you know, data security becomes absolutely critical. I do not want customer data uh, to be out there in the wild, right? Because that breaches trust. That's going to get me in all sorts of trouble with the regulator. Not a great outcome. So when we look at it, I, I like to look at something that Netflix uses when, when it looks at the world in terms of risk management for, the, for, the, for their organization. And they talk about two things. They talk about recoverable errors and irrecoverable errors. And recoverable errors are things you would rather didn't happen, but you can cope if they do. Irrecoverable is the really big stuff that causes you a major problem that you can't get back from. And what they do is they focus on that and say, let's focus, let's put lots of effort into the irrecoverable stuff. And we'll put less effort into the recoverable stuff, recognizing that people's mental capacity to be able to cope with rules, processes, the amount of money that we have to be able to put into these things is limited, it's constrained. And so let's focus on the things that really, really matter. And so our whole program is focused around that recognition. Is this absolutely critical? And that means that you probably have to accept there are going to be certain outcomes from a regulatory perspective or from a risk management perspective that in an ideal world you wouldn't have. But those things are going to happen. So let's let people screw up when it's not serious and not significant. And that requires us to recognize that not every rule is equal. And we need to start thinking about regulations in terms of risk appetite. Which regulations do we under no circumstances want to have breaches in? And which ones whisper it? I wouldn't say this to the regulator, but which ones are we a bit more comfortable with? And so recognizing that this is an art as much as a science is absolutely critical. And, and I think the problem is we get unrealistic statements that we have zero tolerance for blah, 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 blah. Well, sometimes zero tolerance is exactly the right message. Right. We don't want we bullying, uh, you know, uh, data security issues, lots of subjects where you would say we absolutely don't want to have that happen. And we need to really be clear about that. But if we say to employees, look, look, you know, every single rule is zero tolerance for any breach of any rules. We know that's unrealistic. And the moment we put an unrealistic thing out there, then people start to go, well, that's a stupid. You know, that's just an idiot. They, they recognize it for what zero it is. Zero tolerance on Iran sanctions. Then you might as well shut down your Mideast branch. <laughs> 
Well, and you know, it, that's I mean, that's an, that's an interesting thing, right? And and you can see from a regulatory perspective that that when they impose rules, of course, they they the, the logical thing for regulator to do is to go, well, we don't, we, you know, we we're here to make sure people comply with the rules. Our rules are important, so we need to make that particular outcome happen. But we we also know from regulatory sanctions that there is a fundamental difference between something that is seen as a severe problem and something that's probably like a, a you know unhelpful. And so implicitly, we all understand this in other contexts. And so what I'm saying to compliance functions and to regulators is that we need to be realistic about what humans can cope with, what's manageable, and recognize how we deploy the resources, both with organizations, but also within human people's heads. They only have a certain amount of bandwidth to be able to handle this stuff. So let's make sure we deploy that bandwidth appropriately. The explosion of rules should not be understated. Uh, that when you look at the US, they're the, they're the great, you know, they, they, they had the crash of 29, and they had the 33 Act, you know, and then they had the 34 Act and the 1940 Investment Companies and Investment Advisors Act and accident. Those saw them through much of the 20th century. And then you had Sarbanes-Oxley in, in 2002 and, um, you know, Dodd-Frank in 2009-2010. Again, the, the, the number of rules is exploding. And then to come back to something you pointed out, that you, you stress that people aren't necessarily interested in compliance or rules and regs, and that they're tired of endless rounds of compliance training and, and rules and, and training merely to grab an employee's attention, add to their list of things to do. It would seem to me then that the key would be to make rules easy to comply with and that they fit in with an employee's natural workflow. But uh, that, that, that doesn't always happen. And, you know, rules and regs are the first thing you circumvent when you have a choice. Yeah. So, so I think it's, you know, it, it, in an ideal world, what we would do is make compliance invisible. Right. So it would just happen without you even realizing it. We would design workflows and processes uh, and incentives in a way that that it was invisible. Right. You were just doing the right thing by default. And we see this in other contexts. Right. So traffic scenarios, we change the way and passenger, you know, passenger flow at airports and, and transport hubs. They try and design the environment to get the outcome they're looking for, to move people in the right way, to, to minimize risk, you know, sort of stampedes or people going the wrong way. They, they make that happen. And sometimes they do that for nefarious reasons. So we see you know, those airports where you go through the, the, the security, the passport control, and then magically you're dumped into the duty free store and you have to wind your way through. Right? And they're forcing you to go through the store. Yeah. Right? I hate those. Yeah. But but that's an example of where we can sort of create an environment that drives those those particular outcomes. So to the extent that we can do that, we should we should think about doing that and 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 be aware that of course people don't like being told what to do and even in an employment situation there comes a time where there's a limit where you sort of got enough of this now I've had enough of this and so we have to also recognize that that even if we something I call in the book I call the employment contract fallacy. From a legal perspective, an employment contract gives you lots of rights over your employees, right? But in reality, if you were to exercise those rights all of the time, uh, you're going to irritate your employees. Uh, and there are certain things where back to being ethical, for example, certain rules where we need the employees to work with us. And so if we're constantly using a contract to negotiate, uh, to get, you know, get people to behave in a particular way, then that starts to feel quite antagonistic. And we know from other situations when we rely on contracts for things, it means something's gone wrong. So we have this ability to tell people what to do, but it's much better if we can design a world where those things happen more naturally. And so uh, starting to think about compliability 
in, in the loosest sense of the word, which is how difficult is what I am asking people to do. And I use the term asking people because I think it's a bit politer, but it also recognizes this dynamic. If, if we just tell people what to do all the time, at some point they'll rebel. And so that's not a helpful dynamic. So that's I use the, the phrase asking just to... It's a very real risk because, again, endless rounds of perfunctory compliance training don't work. I mean, the tendency is that whenever a scandal breaks, you prescribe more e-training, which... You know, staff see as a burden. I mean, it was well. It's also silly because because the, the logic of something we were doing hasn't worked, so we're going to do more of it, right? So that so the answer on, on the training thing is unless you know double down for sure that the deficiency was the tra- that there, there was no training, or the training was somehow doing more training is 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 the wrong answer if the training was terrible in the first place there's no point doing more of a bad thing you're going to get the, the bad outcome so we need to start identifying when when things aren't working the way we expect why is that and what is a sensible solution to that not sensible from a logical perspective we're not programming machines here what we're doing is we're trying to influence humans to behave in a particular way and so we need to think about when we remediate things often the solution as you were pointing out is just to do more let's go oh we better do more of that well, if the method that we've chosen in the first place is flawed, doing more of it is actually detrimental. And so I, you, you see these simple logical solutions for, oh, well, that's obviously not enough. More training. You will go back to the classroom. But what are the human beings going through that experience? Going, God, more of this crap. I'm, I, you know, I'm done with this. They are going to switch off. And one of the things that we often measure is inputs. So we measure, have people attended a training course? The fact that you are logged into a training course or sat in a seat in a classroom does not mean that you are taking board that information. We have all sat through lectures and classes where we have paid no, or meetings where we've paid no attention whatsoever. So all of those things, attendance on things is an input. The output that we're looking for, the, the outcome that we want to d- deliver is that people do the things we want, don't do the things that we don't. And so we need to think from a behavioral perspective, is what we're asking to do to make sense? Or might it actually be detrimental to load more training on is there something that we can do? And the presumption behind a lot of compliance programs is we have designed the perfect program if it wasn't for those idiot people that weren't following our rules. So we'll just keep doing it. And I say, look, if one or two people are breaking a rule and everybody else is compliant, then you've probably got a people problem. Because if most people can be compliant, one or two people can't, unless there's extenuating circumstances that they're in, that they've got a very unique set of circumstances that mean actually breaking the rules is an understandable outcome. Um, that you know that that you, that points towards the fact that the people are a problem. But if you've got lots of people breaking a rule, then that suggests there's a rule problem. By which I mean either the rule is problematic itself; it's stopping some legitimate outcome, or it's not clear to people. It's difficult to comply with the system that you need people to use is unhelpful. You taught them this eight years ago and expected them to remember. They haven't. There's some issue around that, and so organisations have to recognise that they can contribute to problems. So if your evidence set tells you that you've got mass non-compliance with a particular thing, then there is there will be something that you can do to improve that situation. I'm not saying we let people off the hook and we just blame everything on the organization, but we have to recognize that non-compliance is often an issue that the organization isn't doing its part. It's come up with a solution that isn't working. And that's why I think compliance should be looked at as an experimental discipline. And the same for regulation, by the way. Is that when we are and trying you, to yeah, influence it's a practice? It's it, just as they call it, the practice of law, the practice of medicine. You're you're getting better at it as, as you go along because, I, at least in theory, uh, because to your point about non-compliance, I mean, you also point out there are tons of things you can't monitor. You can't complain. Right. You can't be there at every meeting, and oftentimes, let's take private banking, wealth management, that 
the wealth manager of the private bank will have a more detailed file and note personal notes. They they will know the the client more intimately than the file, the comparable file that the compliance officer is going to be looking at. And indeed, yes. in many instances, they're probably not going to share too many of those details with, with, with compliance. You make, you make a very interesting point around the what's the compliance function there to do? Because, because historically, they, they fulfilled several roles. So on the one hand, you've got the, the, the people that sort of create the training and design the frame, design the, the you know, the, the controls and the processes and the policies and the, 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 the sort of plumbing, if you like, of compliance. You've, you've then got a function of, of the kind of business advisory. So we want you to come and talk to us if you've got any problems or challenges. But they're also the people that issue uh, punishments and disciplinaries to people that get things wrong. And so you're you've got you're wearing several hats there. And one of the things that you, if you think about other contexts in life, if if somebody has the potential to find me, then my interactions with them are likely to be, you know, I'm going to be careful about how I interact with them. And so I think sometimes when we look at the structure of compliance, if one individual or one function can simultaneously meet out punishments and you want full transparency from them. Uh, and they're the people responsible. You know, they send a signal to you that they're not open for discussions because their compliance training or the processes are clunky and not very human. Then you've got a problem there because I'm not going to go and engage with a function that I think doesn't understand the real world that irritates the hell out of me. And we know this, right? When we have dealings with government authorities, if we deal with a particularly bad bit of government bureaucracy, we're like going to go, oh. And we will do the absolute bare minimum to engage with it because it doesn't feel like a particularly joyous experience. And so if compliance functions wants to have early warning of things that might go wrong, then we need to have a, a, a simple approach that says, what do we, you know, what is our brand within the organization? How do people perceive us? And that's partly how we behave and the messages that we send, but it's also in the asks that we have of people. If we are, if we are the purveyors of appalling training, really tedious processes, then that's not sending a signal that we're the kind of people that, that you know you should go and engage with. Because you'll sit there and say, those are the bureaucrats. They don't understand the real world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage with those people as little as possible, particularly where they have that punitive component to their armory. And so we need to think about this because, yes, of course, you have the authority over people as a compliance function. You need them to follow the rules. But let's recognize that's not just a case of walking around and throwing your weight around, because if you do that, people will respond in kind. And one of the interesting things is that if you irritate someone with you know, one pointless policy one pol or, or one communication that's off, that can wreck your program in, in, in other aspects, because you are set every single interaction people have with you, they will start forming a view as to what sort of people you like, you know, what's the function like, what do I want to engage with these people or not? And so an ill thought out piece of training an ill thought out communication can have detrimental impact elsewhere because it doesn't just impact that one scenario. It impacts. It's very, myopic, it's very myopic compartmentalized thinking. You're right. Come back to your point about the real world. Even if you beat out, even if you weed out bad actors, that doesn't fix the environmental factors. No, absolutely. And and so, the, the, I mean, the first thing to say about bad actors is that we that there are going to be a small percentage of people within your organization that are that are in the loosest sense, bad actors, right? They're setting out for whatever reason to break the rules, do things they shouldn't do. There's also a very, very small percentage of people that will set out to 100, always do the right thing. They're just as suspicious, right? That's also strange and worth looking at. For those bad actors, we need to focus on that and we need to find and locate them through monitoring and other processes. 
But what we mustn't do is, is focus solely on those bad actors in the entirety of our compliance program. Because if we do that, what we're sending, we're sending a signal to the entire population that we don't trust them, that we think they are bad actors. And we know from scenarios that if somebody doesn't trust us, we return the favor in kind. So we focus often on bad people when we're writing rules and doing training. My view is we should focus on good people. And the reason for that is as somebody who's a bad actor who is forced to go to training isn't paying attention. And if they are, they're looking for loopholes and problems. They're not going to be listening to that. It's not an effective mechanism to intervene. Ditto, they're not going to be reading policies unless they are looking for loopholes. So we need to think about anybody that's showing up to our training, engaging with us. We should start from the presumption that, that they are good people trying to do the right thing. And we need to support them in doing that. That is a positive message to send out to them. We catch the bad people by other means. Then to your point, when we catch people breaking rules, what we need to what we need to then work out is to say, yes, of course, they are responsible for their own actions and we need to discipline those people. But if we've got widespread non-compliance, yeah, a particular issue, if we just get rid of all the people that are not complying with the rules, yeah, we'll get we'll get rid of some people that are willfully doing it, but we'll also get rid of a load of people that are probably accidentally doing it. And if you just keep firing people that break the rules and you don't look at the environmental factors, you know, what's the incentive program driving? Is the policy or rule clear? Is it something that's reasonable for people to comply with? If you don't start to look at compliability in the loosest possible sense, you can fire the entire organization and rehire new people in, and you will have the same problem. We need to change those environmental factors. And the analogy for that that I use is think about traffic situations. If we have a particular stretch of road where there are lots of accidents, yes, we hold drivers accountable for their driving, of course. But what we also do is we say, that's interesting. There's a junction here where there's tons of accidents. We better do something about changing that junction because we can ban all of the drivers that have accidents from ever driving again. But we're going to get another set coming to that same junction and have the same problem. The environment you know, can it be a serious influencer of behavior? So we need to also change the environment and work out what are the drivers of that? Because if we just get rid of the people, we're just asking for the same problem to recur time and time again. And it's those sorts of that sort of thinking that we often don't see. There's a presumption if we fire the people that have broken the rules, we have solved the problem. You haven't. You've just kicked the can down the road. There's a risk of the new people that you get in doing the same thing because, yes, we may have different motivations, but ultimately the human OS that we're all programmed with you know, is, is the same. And so you need, we do, do need to be thinking about that, that particular dynamic. And so to your point is the focus on bad apples is understandable. And it's a very convenient narrative, by the way, because organizations, if you've got a cup, oh, you know, let's get rid of the bad apples and this organization will be fine. Well, question one is, are they homegrown? What is driving that particular behavior? But secondly, you've got to recognize that there will be environmental factors and you have to address those. Otherwise, you just face, you, you risk facing the same problem down the line. Coming back to influences of behavior, uh, Clearly, incentives and consequences factor into that. What are your thoughts on having compliance have a say in employer remuneration? <laughs> we have incentive programs to incentivize people to behave in a particular way. Now, those incentive programs can have unintended consequences. In medical terms, what you might call side effects. Now, if we think about side effects, side effects is just something we don't want to have happen. The, the side in side effects is actually misleading. Because it sort of suggests, here's some stuff that's the side issue, and then what we wanted is the main thing. But actually, it's not a side effect. It's just an effect. And so there will be things in the incentive. By, by default, any incentive program that you design will have unintended consequences. And so we have to look and say, well, what are those? And how can we design those incentive programs to be more effective? Now, some of that is, you know, particularly in highly paid, where, where financial reward plays a key role in people wanting to do the job in the first place, but also incentivizing their behavior. We're going to look at it and say, well, what are the potential risks of doing that? 
And so we compliance does need to play a role in that and looking at the structure of it and saying, how is things being? Are we rewarding people for bad behavior, for the sorts of things that we say we don't want? And if we're doing that and, you know, people are very, very good at working out the realities of the world. We, 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 you know, we look, we're told theoretically how the world is. We get that through training, communications and, and, uh, but but actually, we all sniff it out for ourselves. We are constantly scanning our environment wherever we are to work out, you know, what what what, what how do things actually work around here? And so, if people feel like they are incentivized for you know make as much money as you can, however you can, you know, whatever it takes, type thing. And I think one of the things that, that's interesting is that we don't necessarily think again. We don't necessarily look at the downsides of the remuneration problem. I, I, my view is that anytime we introduce something that has the objective of influencing humans, so whether that's a rule, whether that's an incentive program, whether that's a control, communications, any of these things, we should be saying to ourselves, where might this go wrong? Let's ethically hack this thing and recognize where the downsides are. Now, that's not to say that I think you can design a perfect thing. There is, you know, the world is not beautifully, clearly delineated. The situations are going to change. You're going to get different people coming into contact with things. So there's all sorts of variables there. But we need to recognize that it is, you know, it's, it's probably, let's start with, it's impossible to get it 100% right. So let's see where have we got it potentially wrong. And let's keep an eye out for that. And if we recognize the thing that we've designed is producing too many unintended consequences, then we need to start tweaking that thing and recognize back to the point around behavioral experimentation. All of these things are attempts to influence people. Incentive programs are an attempt to influence people. And so we need to start tweaking it and treat it much more as a scientific experiment. In many respects, treat it a bit like marketing. Right. When companies run advertising campaigns, they have a hypothesis before they spend money on how that ad campaign will work. You don't get to spend millions on an ad campaign without some sort of sense that it might work. And then what you do is you monitor how it works. And if an ad campaign is producing negative results or it's not producing, you pull it um, or you tweak it. We should look at compliance and other uh, other attempts to influence people in the same light. We should we should have a hypothesis going in, and that, that hypothesis shouldn't be well. Here's a logical approach. It should be behaviorally informed to say not what we would like people to do, but what are they likely to do? What's going to happen in the real world when we do this? And then we monitor it and we tweak and adjust accordingly. And and the thing I find very bizarre is that people in compliance are allowed to spend millions in terms of people's time and effort and the function itself, millions on influencing human decision-making without having any real idea as to whether it's effective. They use the logic of, we have to do this. We've always done this. It's what everybody else is doing. If you did that in marketing, you would be fired. You can't just go, I want to spend a few million on an advertising campaign. Well, how do you know it's working? Oh, I don't I have no idea. We'll just do what we did last time. That's not acceptable. And I don't think that should be acceptable in the compliance context either. We should have an informed view from a behavioral perspective as to why we're doing something. And then we monitor and say, is it doing the thing that we want? Now, that requires you to accept that you are doing something that is experimental. Now, people often say to me, well, how do you know this behavioral stuff will work? And I say, how do you know what you're doing at the moment will work? Right? We shouldn't be judging the behavioral stuff that I'm talking about with a different uh, set of criteria to what we're doing already. And the stuff that we're doing already is often just handed down from previous generations. There is no science or logic to it. We're just doing it. And that, I think, is, is, is we're missing a massive trick there because we're spending a ton of resources and effort where we don't necessarily have a view or an understanding of what the outcomes are. And that's why we get ourselves into situations where, surprise, surprise, it hasn't worked. And we're like, oh, didn't realize that. If we recognize this as an experiment, then we know that we need to tweak and monitor and pay attention to what's happening. The behavioral model has been borne out uh, in terms of economics, criminology, even in the military context. Something that really comes through from your book 
is that human risk is the greatest risk of organizations, and that too many corporates and financial institutions treat their people like would-be criminals and therefore implement inter internal protocols and procedures that show their staff that they don't trust them. From a risk management perspective, how does one influence people more effectively and positively? The, the answer is to think about the real drivers of human decision making. So not the things we would like to think work, but let's also, so some, you know, and, 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 and of course, I'm not saying our intuition is wrong about things. We know that incentive programs will work, uh, you know, to, to some level, we need to recognize the downsides of what we're putting in, in place. But we need to think about some of the factors that we don't often consider. So in the book, I, I outline three factors that are critical to, to driving human decision making. Not the only ones, but three things that we can think about. The first one is that people's decision making is driven very much by their own experience and their own perspective on things. And so if I have worked in a particular environment where something is prevalent and I move to another environment, unless I have some, some points that tell me this environment is potentially different, I may well behave based on my past experience. And so it, what does that mean in the 21st century? Well, if we're hiring people from different organizations, we need to spend time recognizing that if we're expecting them to behave potentially differently to the environment that they were in before, that requires an effort. Equally, if we're imposing a global standard on an organization, maybe we're thinking about, well, are there local cultural norms that could run against that? Are there, are there things that people will presume based on their own experience that might not be valid? That's a, a, a heavy driver. And so recognizing that that's there. In other words, it's not all about what we tell them. It's actually about their own experience and what it feels like for them. The second factor is other people. And so we are heavily influenced by what we see other people do. And we know this when we go on vacation somewhere. Uh, if we don't know which restaurant to go and eat in, then one of the things we can do is we either look at TripAdvisor, that's other people giving us advice or other restaurant review sites, or we might wander around and we go, which restaurant looks busy? And we've got a choice of two restaurants, one of which is incredibly busy and the other one's open but empty. We're probably unlikely to go to the one that's empty because there's a reason no one's eating there. Maybe they poison people. Maybe it's incredibly expensive. Maybe the food's terrible. But there's some reason that we can see that's not. So we source a lot of our information about what, how to behave from the crowds. And that's not a factor that's often considered by compliance programs. We often think about if we've told them to do this, then that's job done. We see the induction training. This is a very ethical company, we get told when we join them. And then people just they, that tends to not you know, be something we, we, we particularly register because we're going to see for ourselves. We're going to see what happens. And so we need to look at the influence that other people have. And we can often inadvertently communicate what other people are doing to a population. So if you have a particular uh, this happens with surveys quite a lot, but also with training or other compliance requirements, we've got a lot of people who haven't done something. So let's email the population to tell them they need to do this. Well, what that email that we send out to everybody that says that you know, here's a thing we need you to do and lots of you haven't done it. What that email says is, well, here's a, here's a clue that not many people are compliant with it because they wouldn't be sending an email out if it was, was a small problem. It's a big enough problem to warrant an email. And we got very clear sense here that lots of people aren't complying. And what's interesting about that is if I'm somebody that has complied, I'm being told something that's that actually is unhelpful to me because I sort of go, well, hold on, I've done this thing. Why have all these other people not done it? That's really annoying. Why am I the idiot here that's complying? And if you're somebody that's not compliant, if you get a sense that you're not the only one, you're in a big gang of people, then suddenly your perspective on that can change because you'll think, well, I'm not the only one. There must be that must be the normal thing that we do here. And so the influence that other people have is is it's, it doesn't sit neatly in a box, but it has a serious impact on on how we uh, how we perceive. Uh, how we should behave. And so we need to factor in where might that be playing. 
The third factor then, again, is uh, I've mentioned it before, is environment. And we need to be thinking about what might the environment that people are in do to their decision making. And so if we look at you know, certain rules will apply in certain situations. Now, if we design the rule for people who are have nothing else to do but think about this particular rule. So let's think about a, a, a gifts and entertainment situation. A, a lot of organizations will understandably have constraints around what gifts you can give and what gifts you can receive. And the recipient will be relevant to, to, to those limits as well in some cases. The government officials, you may not be able to give gifts, or there may be stricter limits than non-government officials. So now we look at those things and we say this is all perfectly logical. But in the heat of the moment, when someone is having an interaction and they are being presented with a gift, we need to think not theoretically about, well, this is the logical process they ought to flow through, but how do they deal with the embarrassment of a client that is potentially giving them a gift? What are they supposed to do in the moment? And the answer, the, you know, theoretical answer, well, phone compliance. I'm unlikely to say, oh, stop your gift giving. I've just got to phone my compliance function. We need to give people a script to be able to handle that particular situation. And so the three factors that I've talked about, they don't neatly arrive on their own and sit there and say, this is one of those situations, but they can help us to identify where a logical theoretical approach might not work. And so if we want to support people in making better decisions and inhibit them and deter them from making bad ones, we need to start recognizing how some of these factors that we often don't consider can come into play because those factors can be much more powerful than the traditional techniques like training communications that we might use. And in fact, if the realities of the world are at odds with the theory of what we've been told. So a communication program tells us one thing, but we see in reality something else is going on. A training program is unrealistic about what it expects, or a control is ludicrous in terms of it being unrealistic for the world that we're in, then that poses people a problem. And so we need to recognize those dynamics are powerful and start thinking about it. And that's where having behavioral science understanding can support us, because we can start to see some of the factors that we might not ordinarily consider that will become significant for certain requirements or rules or outcomes that we're looking for. And then we can design things with that behavioral thing in mind. It's certainly a helpful predictive tool. Uh, in, in the time we've got left, those were all the questions I had for you. Was there anything you wanted to add anything you feel we, we might not have covered? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, the key bit that I would highlight to people is that Please. we often think organizationally when we are looking at compliance. And 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 I also point the, point the finger at regulators here as well. They're, they're often thinking about the theory of what we want to have happen. What's the big picture outcome? That is their task. But if we want to be successful at delivering this, we need to flip it around and say, what does that mean on the ground? The way that you deliver the big picture outcome, the societal one from a regulatory perspective or the organizational one from a compliance or senior management perspective, the answer is we have to think about the individuals on the ground that are, that are there to do that. And so when, when we look at that, the way that we can do that most effectively is to put ourselves in their shoes, to think about things from their perspective. And that's not, I come back to this thing I said before, that's not about how we would like them to behave. It is how they are likely to behave. So in other words, understanding what real people in the real world are doing. Now, that is hard for us to do because there is something in behavioral science called the curse of knowledge. And, and what the curse of knowledge is, is the more we know something, the harder it is for us to put ourselves in the position of somebody that doesn't know. And so we can see this, for example, people that are very talented at sport. Some of those people struggle to be good coaches because they can't understand how you can't, the, the basic attributes they have that other people don't have. We are terrible as a species at understanding things from other people's perspective because we are very programmed to see things from our own perspective, logically, because we have more insights there. And so one of the things that we need to think about, when I say think about things from the perspective of other people, 
is it is worth reflecting on the fact that we can often be blind to that. And so we need to reflect the, on, on, on that particular fact. And so the more time we spend looking at something, a compliance regulation, for example, the, the more we understand about it. And it's really difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of someone that doesn't. And that applies particularly where we've got annual processes. So imagine you've got an annual attestation process or some sort of thing that happens once a year. There may be someone that's responsible for that process and they will be up to their neck in that process, designing it, organizing it, and they're spending their whole time looking at it. For somebody that isn't, even if they saw it a year ago, they might have forgotten all about it. They won't be aware of it. And so we often design things without really thinking about things from the other perspective. So the key bit I think people need to bear in mind is that we need to take a leaf out of companies like Apple's books. If you look at the iPhone and you know other smartphones, similar things apply. This you don't need to read a user manual to use it. You can just dive straight in. It's designed. They have got a really, really good customer-centric thing. We've all been through experiences as customers that have felt fantastic, right? Slick, seamless. It was great. Things just happened. The challenge with compliance is that sometimes we do want it to be super smooth. We don't want people to think. We just want them to get on with it. There are other times where we want them to feel like we, we actually want to insert, make the it what's called friction, make the process a little bit tougher because we want them to stop and think about what they're doing and go a little bit more slowly at that point. Now, all of those things, what things feel like is not about what they feel like in theory. It's about, it's, it's about the realities. So what does this actually feel like for the people going through it? And that's very hard for us to assess. So we have to think about things from their perspective, but recognize that's really difficult for us to do that. And so if we did that, we'd have much more effective outcomes because we would recognize the realities of what is there. And that's an awkward thing for us to have to do. It makes the job much harder, but I think that's the most significant thing. If we want to succeed, that's where we need to put our focus. Well put. That's a good, that's a good note to end on. Christian Hunt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And to our viewers, thank you for joining us. Until next time.